I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. It's near the end of your Old Testament. So if you just go to Matthew and then you go back two books, you pass the Italian prophet of Malachi. Just kidding. Got to see if you're paying attention. Malachi. Um, Malachi. But then heading to Zechariah 9. That's where we're going to be this Palm Sunday. I'm taking a break from Samuel where we've been at. I'm taking a break this week and next week as we observe Easter. I originally had intentions of preaching of David and Goliath on Palm Sunday and Easter, but I didn't have intentions of breaking up 1 Samuel 15 as I have the last three weeks. So that's why I've changed my mind. I want to suggest this. I don't know if anybody will disagree with me. The world wants a righteous king. Perhaps the paradox of democracy is that though we talk about power and liberty for citizens, power and liberty for people, and and even communists and socialists say it's all about the people having power, even so. Democracies and communist regimes the world over usually do what? They elect or they look up to central leadership figures. Because even in the most democratic of governments, everyone still wants to have at least one leader at the top. I don't know why. That's been the story of Israel in our book of 1 Samuel. That even though Yahweh assumed kingship of Israel, and rightly so, making them somewhat of a peculiar nation, being led by God that they could not see. Even so, they rebelled and they demanded from Yahweh, from Yahweh's prophet Samuel, a king like them. Let me turn this off. I invite you to do the same. (laughs) A king like all the other nations have. It seems to be a shared longing. But more than just any leader, we want righteous leaders. See, in the past few elections, the points have been made that platform is really not enough. A set of issues as to where a person stands just isn't enough. We want someone with righteous character. We want someone that speaks, acts, and is presidential, as the term has been used. We're tired of leaders with guilty, dirty track records. And as far as America is concerned, and probably as far as every nation is concerned, doesn't it always seem to be give and take? Sometimes we get people who sound, act, and maybe be nice, but their policies and dealings are dirty and rotten. And then we get people who, with moral failings and character flaws so apparent, but then their policies and dealings seem to be almost just and fair. In our passage today, we hear a prophecy upwards of about five and a half hundred years before the time of Jesus talk about Jesus' triumphal entry, his Palm Sunday experience, indeed the coming of a righteous king. I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Lord's word this morning one last time, and we'll read Zechariah 9, 9 through 12. We read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. Let's pray. Father, often we come to your word and we read words like these and there's so much it seems between us and those words. We kind of get the, uh, the gist of it, but there's just cultural words, Christianese words, hard to understand words. I pray that your spirit who inspired the writing of these words would be present today ministering to us, showing us what you want us to hear and see and absorb from these words. Father, most of all, we pray for the coming of the righteous king. We know he has come, and we pray for his return. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would see salvation today, that you would win over our hearts, and that we would be yielded and obedient to you. Say what it is you desire to say, and move me out of the way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. After Israel entered the monarchy, it went downhill pretty quickly with King Saul. King David comes after King Saul. And even though David is considered a golden precedent in the Israel mindset, he still had a shaky kingdom. His son Solomon also had a golden but shaky kingdom. And then it's just civil war. Two kingdoms with some good kings, but mostly bad kings. Eventually, Assyria takes out the northern kingdom in the 700s B.C. Then Babylon takes out the southern kingdom in the first part. I didn't know how to word this. The higher numbers of 500s B.C., since we're counting backwards in B.C., And then in the mid to low 500s B.C., after Babylon, who had conquered southern Israel, Babylon itself is conquered by Persia. Persia releases the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. Israel is still conquered, but Persia says, in my own words, we have no need for you to be in our lands or in Babylon. Just go back to your homeland. You're still our people. Don't rebel, but... And the first eight chapters of the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is prophesying about rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and so forth. But then as we turn the corner at chapter 9, Zechariah prophesies about the future. The first eight verses actually of chapter 9, which we didn't read, without dissecting it for you, Zechariah prophesies actually about Alexander the Great. And Greece coming through and wiping out even Persia by this point. And even before we begin to look over his words with verse 9, I want us to think about this, Christian. 
How can our future determine our now? How can our future determine our now? Because we as Christians have a very unique vantage point. The author of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And people, since they have nothing better to do, decide to debate about that meaning as well. But among its many meanings, I think it shows us that we are a people inherently we should know that what's in front of us is not all there is. That's what allows us to make plans. That's what allows us to reflect on our past and our nation's past and humanity's past. And this is what makes people dream about the future. What does our future, namely God's future for mankind, what does that tell us about our now? It tells us this, that Christ wins. And his kingdom will be victorious. And everything Zechariah says about Christ's first coming, his first triumphal entry, has foreshadows of his second coming and his entire triumph physically over the world. First, Zechariah says it loud and clear. The king is coming, and he says again, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble. And because I'm weird and I know some of you have OCD, I'm going to break off our first topic right there. Humble. The king is coming. Even after Greece wipes out Israel and all the lands around it, and though Zechariah didn't prophesy about it in these first eight verses of Zechariah 9, what else happens? In the double-digit years before the coming of Jesus, Rome wipes out Greece. (laughs) Good grief. (laughs) Oppression, oppressed people, conquered people, and then more specifically Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, And Jerusalem, the citizens of the holiest city in Israel, where in which David once ruled, they all have cause to rejoice and shout and triumph. Don't miss this. Zechariah is talking to a conquered people by Persia. He's prophesied their oppression from Greece. And then Zechariah's prophecy will come to pass after they are conquered by Rome. Even though... Even so, they have reason to rejoice. Do you ever feel conquered by the world's powers? I get it. We're citizens of a free and independent nation. Even so, Paul would tell us in Ephesians 2.2, the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, is now working in the disobedient. There's another ruler in our world, in our lands. Paul also says later in that book, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The point being is this, that a freed and peaceful people physically is never a freed and peaceful people spiritually. Some of you get that. (laughs) Know that. Experience that. Interesting that in some of Israel's greatest times, according to them, was when they were slaves back in Egypt. They had homes, they had jobs, although they were forced jobs with no money, but they had food and they were told what to do. And they leave Egypt and they start complaining to Moses, take us back. We don't like this freedom thing. 
So as American citizens, no matter our freedoms or political independence, there is no doubt a spiritual oppression at work. And some of you know how this looks nationally and publicly, and some of you know how this looks personally. And God, through Zechariah, cuts through all the oppression and all the weight, and He says, Rejoice greatly, you who are God's people. Shout in triumph, you who are God's people. You can rejoice now. (laughs) And you can shout in triumph knowing this, Look, your king is coming to you. Do you know you have a king today? I'm not talking about your mayor, your governor, your president. But you have a king over those little kings. You have a lord over those little lords. And he is coming. He is coming to us and this is the best kind of king there is. Now for many People throughout many times and places, kings meant tyranny. Kings meant lots of taxes. Kings meant pompous, power-hungry, lording over greedy people who maybe not express it in our day and age, but they seem to believe in classes and us and them. And I'm educated, I know it all, and I have power. And then there are uneducated, ungrateful, and people who know too little. Not our king. We'll get to who he is in a minute, but first Zechariah says, Look, your king is coming to you, and he is righteous and victorious. This king is righteous, not unrighteous. He's not like the kings of this world. And the CSB says victorious here. Now, some translations like the ESV would say righteous and having salvation is he. Now, from my commentary that I was studying through, which makes the most sense to me is that this is the king being described. And so this victorious here is not so much talking about victory from enemies, but it's describing more about who the king is. Now, here's what one of the translations that I was reading would say is that he is legitimate. He is vindicated. He's righteous and he's victorious, or he's legitimate and vindicated. In other words, shown to be king by who he is and what he does. Give you an example. Peter would say at Pentecost, five weeks after the resurrection Sunday, as a crowd gathered and hears him preach, Peter says, therefore, and the context is um, this, Peter and the disciples witnessed Christ from the dead. Everyone around Peter in the sermon that he's giving just witnessed the Spirit pour out on Peter and the disciples. So, therefore, in light of all these things, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In other words, do you hear the vindication in that? That Jesus is legitimate. (laughs) Everything you just saw. He's vindicated. Our king is righteous and victorious. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we seem to live in a world that doesn't find Jesus all the time righteous. They don't find him all the time vindicated. I brought this up before, that there was this book, and I keep using it as an example, and the book's getting older and older. But ten years ago, I think, there was a book entitled, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. 
And the premise was this, that lots of non-believers found Jesus inviting, warm, and welcoming, but they find his followers judgmental, hypocritical, and hostile. And okay, there's some truth there. Guess what? Churches are filled with sinners. I am one too, but as I went through this book, I noted this. There seems to be a disconnect going on here between those voicing these sentiments. Because a lot of the beef that non-believers had with Christians was on our moral ethics that we derived directly from the mouth of Jesus. <laughs> a lot of things that Jesus says is hard, but true. One beef that they had was Christians are so narrow. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sounds like you're disqualifying every other religion on planet Earth, Jesus. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and you can focus on that, or you can focus on what Jesus is offering. A way, a truth, and a life. Now that's harsh. Why do you say things like that, Christian? Because I'm a Christ, Ian. I endeavor to say and be true to what Jesus says and does. My point is this. Jesus has enemies today, and Jesus isn't always seen as king, right? But just as he came righteous and victorious the first time, conquering Satan, sin, and death, when he comes to consummate history, Paul tells us this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Jesus Christ of the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He is vindicated. He is both Lord and Messiah. Now here's the paradox. Because you're like, that sounds like a very overbearing, pompous king. He's humble. Lowly. One definition of this word would even be afflicted. And a variation of this Hebrew word would be the same afflicted in the suffering servant poem of Isaiah 52 and 53. Look, your king is coming. He's righteous. He's vindicated. He's victorious. He's bringing salvation and he's afflicted. He's lowly. He's humble. Now, by this point, when Zechariah is writing, it is well established through the writings of the prophets that the king that Zechariah is talking about is one that is going to be the picture or the idea of King David. And King David was afflicted. Where we are at in our first Samuel study is right at the precipice of King Saul being rejected by God and David about to be anointed. But before David takes the throne, if you know your Bibles, for the rest of first Samuel, David is chased. He's afflicted. He's hunted down by Saul. He's lowly. But then, as I said, Isaiah 53, verse 4, Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted, lowly, humbled. See, the king that is coming and has come for us carried our pains. But because of how he came only to be betrayed and to be executed and to die, what did people think about him? This, this isn't our Messiah. This is a man convicted and obviously judged by God. He's not king material. He's lowly. He's afflicted. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Lowly and humbled. 
Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to, to the slaughter and the sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. This is how our king comes. So are you oppressed? Look, your king is coming. Peace is coming. That's the next part in Zechariah. Peace is coming. We ride that he will be riding. We read. Got those words mixed up. We read that he will be riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God then says to Zechariah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the largest northern tribes of Israel. And it was often used interchangeably to describe Israel. And the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be removed and he will reclaim peace to the nations. So in our day and age, if a world ruler rides into a city in a limousine, maybe even escorted, it's probably going to be a diplomatic, normal, peaceful event. If he's put into a tank surrounded by soldiers, even though we don't see kings and world leaders really taking upon themselves to go to war anymore, but you would get the picture. He's not there for a staff meeting. (laughs) In Zechariah's day and age, in Jesus' day and age, the proverbial tank was a horse. If he's on a horse, he means war. If he's on a donkey, he's traveling and going through towns with peaceful intentions. Jesus comes humble and peacefully, but God takes it further here to make sure we get the picture symbolically. Zechariah prophesies on behalf of God that the chariot... Or the symbol of an invading army will be cut off. The bow of war. In other words, no archers. (laughs) Indeed, the king will proclaim peace to the nations. Now, beyond Israel, his peace is proclaimed to the nations. And we'll get to the worldwide reign of Christ here in a minute. But for now, I've said this from time to time before if you've been here for a while. But consider Christ has come and he's ushered in a kingdom and he's done so without any violence. Jesus did not handle the sword. I don't mean that literally. Maybe he did, but he didn't handle it to hack anybody down. His disciples did not go to battle. The one time Peter swung a sword and chopped off an ear while Jesus was getting arrested. And that one occasion, Jesus healed that man's ear. (laughs) But Jesus ushered in a kingdom by preaching. By healing, by saving, by compassion, by giving life, by meeting with sinners, by feeding the hungry, by hanging out with the poor. And his peaceful kingdom advanced powerfully. Now, even though we're Christians and we say we know, love, serve, and follow Christ, I don't know about you, but there's still a part of me that doesn't believe a kingdom comes by serving. Right? It comes by power. It comes by the right people leading. It comes by clever tactics with people in high places. Jesus didn't gather about him politicians, rebel leaders, and powerful spies. He gathered fishermen. (laughs) Jesus didn't legislate, lobby, and run campaigns. He loved, he served, and he did. That's how a peaceful kingdom came. Now, I get it. We live in a nation that was largely founded by Christian ideals and Christians, and we still live in a government, whether it's invited or accepted or not. But we still have freedom and access to influence our government and leadership. But we cannot negate how Christ changed his world. And he did it by bringing a kingdom within the kingdom he lived in. 
He did it by being a king, presiding over a kingdom in which he told one of the political rulers of his day, Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. The Rome of Jesus' day, it's no more. But Jesus' kingdom still lives. Which one tried to sustain itself by power grabbing, warring, and legislating? Rome tried. Which one sustained itself by the gospel, by preaching, by loving and serving? Jesus' kingdom did. Which one's still here? Jesus' kingdom. In fact, look at the domain of this kingdom as we continue in our text. His dominion will extend from sea to sea. In the Jewish mind, they're probably thinking from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. But then from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Now the Hebrew here actually just says from the river to the ends of the earth. And in Hebrew culture, with that definite article, the, followed by the noun river, in a statement like this, usually it meant they were referring to the Euphrates. That's why the CSP puts it in there. But there are two relevant verses that I want to connect to Zechariah 9 for you. It seems that Zechariah, in his writing, may be inspired in large part by Psalm 72. Now, we do know this, that the author who wrote Psalm 72 ultimately wrote Zechariah 9. That's the Holy Spirit. (laughs) The Holy Spirit empowered both Solomon and Zechariah. Psalm 72, verse 8, practically verbatim says, May he rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Entitled by Solomon, this psalm is called A Prayer for the King. Furthermore, going back into Israel's history... When God is speaking to Moses about the possession that Israel will have as they enter the promised land, we read in Exodus 23, verses 29 through 31, I will drive them out little by little ahead of you until you have become numerous and take possession of the land. Verse 31, I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from sea to sea. And then that second part, from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. For I will place the inhabitants of the land under your control, and you will drive them out ahead of you. So Psalm 72 and Zechariah are saying, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth, and then God says in Exodus here, from the wilderness to the Euphrates River, wilderness, ends of the earth, these are common Old Testament symbols for Gentile lands, pagan territories. The same figure that Zechariah is talking about. A king with vast authority. And we know as none other than Jesus who fulfilled this. What does Jesus call himself a lot? He calls himself the son of man. And Jesus takes this title for himself from another prophecy, namely a prophecy given through Daniel. Daniel says, one like a son of man was coming. With the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days. We should sing a song about that. Uh, A name for God. And was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is King Jesus. He rules and he reigns. And as I said, the Rome Jesus was in is no more but the kingdom that he brought by peace, by service, by his very death, 
rules and reigns, and his kingdom is a kingdom pervading throughout all kingdoms. And his citizens and ambassadors are sprinkled throughout the world. The king is coming, peace is coming, and his dominion is coming, and he has promised his coming. That's what we read next, and here's what it says. It says, as for you, because of the blood of your covenant. You said, how is that a promise? I'm going to show it to you. I hope you don't get a headache. (laughs) Some of you are like, it's already there, Kevin. (laughs) Thanks a lot. No, um, this is how God reckons with his people in Zechariah to the Israelites. God's reign is worldwide right now, and it will be even more fuller at his second coming. But God has a particular affection and a particular connection with those of his blood covenant. In the Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system was a system of blood. Animals slaughtered. But there was a time when the Lord ratified his covenant through Moses. In Exodus 24, we find this ceremony where, where, where some bulls were sacrificed and we're told that Moses took half the blood and, and set it in basins. The other half of the blood splattered on the altar. Aren't you glad we don't do this anymore? He then took the covenant scroll and read it. So the law that he had up to that point allowed to the people. And they responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. And you read the rest of the Old Testament and you see how that goes. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So you got splattered in blood. Thanks. And covenants were this. I'll keep my word about what I do to you and you keep your word. It's a formal agreement or contract. And the blood signifies this. I will pay in blood if I don't keep my word. And the history of Israel from Exodus onward is one where Israel constantly failed. (laughs) Constantly failed. But Exodus wasn't the first time God made a covenant with his people. We read that God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Only one of the more significant factors in that covenant is we read that a deep sleep came over Abram. And if both parties aren't awake... When a covenant is sealed, that means Abram really can't say, may my blood play if I don't, may my blood pay if I don't keep my word. Which leaves God to say, may my blood pay if either you or I don't keep this covenant. When the Son of Man, Jesus, the ruler of the nations, when he comes and he starts building his kingdom with 12 disciples, he sits down with them four days after he comes in on the donkey. He sits down to have Passover meal with them, which is a very significant traditional meal for Jewish people. It signifies the first Passover, the night where Moses eventually led the Israelites out of Egypt. Because a death angel came to take all of Egypt's firstborn sons. A lamb was sacrificed. Its blood was smeared on the doorposts, signifying this blood will pay for my own firstborn son's blood. And thus the death angel passed over the Israelites who sacrificed a lamb and did this. Maybe they should call it Passover. (laughs) Jesus picks up a cup of wine at this celebration that they're having, commemorating the Passover. And he says to his disciples, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is fulfilling the blood spilt when God made a covenant with Abram. Jesus is fulfilling the blood of the firstborn son when the death angel came, which is very interesting because all the firstborn sons that died in the Passover were Gentiles. Jesus is the substitutionary lamb spread on the doorpost whose sons were saved. Jesus is fulfilling the blood required when Moses sprinkled blood across the people who all said, we'll fulfill our part of the covenant, and they never did. Paul says in Acts 20.28 that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. He owns us. He purchased us to bring salvation, to do good to us. That's the last part of the prophecy here. We finish it out. He says, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cistern. Return to a stronghold, you prisoners who have hope. Today I declare that I will restore double to you. Israel in its history had at least two stories I can think of, of people being thrown down into a waterless pit and left for dead. The prophet Jeremiah was one, but also earlier the story of Joseph. Joseph was the story of a son, a favored son actually, of the namesake Israel, also known as Jacob. So Jacob, also known as Israel, had the son Joseph. And the day his jealous brothers threw him down into a waterless pit was a day I'm sure Joseph wondered, how in the world am I ever going to get out of this predicament? And he came out of that pit by his brothers. Yay, they changed their minds only to sell him (laughs) to some slave traders. They wanted to get some money off of him instead of just leave him for dead. The slaves eventually take Joseph to Egypt where he is bought and placed in a prominent household. The wife in that household makes advances on Joseph. Joseph declines. So out of spite, he is accused by the wife of making advances on her. So then he winds up in prison. He's having a great life so far. In a waterless cistern, traded to slaves at a prison in Egypt, if you know your stories, God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. Which comes in handy when the pharaoh of Egypt turns her hears about a dream interpreter from the dungeons. Joseph interprets the pharaoh's dream that he had to say this. You're going to have seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. So then Joseph is put in charge of preparing for that. He's basically made the prime minister of Egypt. Now, from a waterless cistern to the prime minister of Egypt... And all of that power doesn't go to his head because as God would have it, eventually the very brothers who put him into the pit to begin with show up hungry from the famine that's reached Israel and Joseph saves them. He shows grace. God through Zechariah is using this illustration. If you're a prisoner who finds himself in a waterless cistern, have you ever been there? Maybe it's not like Joseph. But maybe like Joseph, it's, it's betrayal. I got you there. Maybe like Joseph, it seems impossible to find victory. You're thirsting and there's no water. The walls are deep and there's no ladder. And God is saying, Zechariah is saying, you're just at the beginning of Joseph's story. You and I are prisoners who have hope. And God ends by saying, today I declare that I will restore double to you. See... God's going to give his people back more than they lost. 
this is true as far as Jesus is concerned. Because Israel is an oppressed nation and more than receiving their freedom, the greater Israel, as Paul would explain in Romans 4, that is those who are children of the promise by faith in Christ, that's all of us, can receive immortality and resurrection life, freedom from sins, freedom from what sin brings, death. See, we lost at our 80-something years on planet Earth. But through our King, we've gained peace. His dominion, and we will reign with Him, and the promise of life eternal living with our Creator. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you want a righteous King politically, nationally, publicly. Maybe you realize this, that that your own body, your own life, it needs a new King, because the guy at the helm now isn't working. (laughs) Anyone ever been there like I am? Look no further than Jesus. He has come to die for our sins, rise again, and give us new life. And he's coming again. And what he brings is peace, dominion, and salvation. Now, I know that that's not not a good thing. It doesn't really entice you to come to him. But if you can find it within yourself to really want peace, dominion, and salvation, maybe you should come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, sometimes there are people like me who maybe grew up in the church, and I at least read over the story at least every Palm Sunday, not to mention the times I might encounter it in my other readings throughout the year, and it can lose its freshness and power. Forgive me for that, and I thank you that you would take these words today and show me what you mean by them. Father, it's so refreshing to know that we have a king who rules over all kings, Father, we we thank you for coming the first time. I love what you say in the book of John, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it it down on my own authority. Father, you knew what would happen when your son Jesus came to Israel. Even so, you sent him. Lord Jesus, thank you that in the garden, even though you asked for this cup to be passed, you said, not my will, but your will be done. Because you knew that it would give me salvation. It would forgive me of my sins. That you would become the blood sacrificed once and for all, as Hebrews would say. That every person who comes to you can find shelter in your wings. Father, for those of us who may have not accepted you as Lord and Savior, would this be the day of salvation? Father, would you enter into our hearts? We confess to you that we have sinned. Father, what what remains for us is death if we don't find a way out. You sent your son Jesus to become our sin, to become our righteousness. We accept you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done, for dying for our sins. We're grateful that you have risen, that you rule and reign, that you are coming again. We ask that you would receive us as your son or daughter so that we might live with you forever, that we might find salvation, we might find peace in you. And I love what you said to the woman at the well, that those who come and drink here will thirst, but those who come to the living water will thirst no more. Thank you that you are living water. Father, would you strengthen us in our faith this week whenever we are sad about the world's kings or sad about the king of our own bodies, that we would rely on the king of kings, that we would know that all authority belongs to you. Thank you for that. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.